Olasa, this practice of attending to the space of the body and to the emergence of the four, of the four elements, as well as the feelings that arise within the space of the body, is a very nice natural prelude to, or leads to, the more subtle practice of attending to the space of the mind and the thoughts and images, the emotions, feelings that arise in the space of the mind. So as you recall, the, the general sequence within the four applications of mindfulness is from coarse to subtle, just like mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness is following that same, that same trajectory. So in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, which will start in two days, um, the really, the, the, the entrance to the practice, as so eloquently and I think precisely taught by Dujong Mingba, is to be able to distinguish, do you recall, Miles, the very first step? Exactly right, exactly right. To distinguish between stillness and movement. And the stillness is of your own awareness, and the movement, everything that's taking place, all the comings and goings, images, thoughts, desires, and so forth, that are arising and see, see through your own experience that they are not the same, that they're not melted, they're not merged. But in fact, there can be a stillness of the awareness even while the thoughts and so forth are in motion. That is, in other words, through the absence of grasping. It's actually a very simple thing. Not easy, but it is simple. Through the very absence of grasping, even while thoughts, memories, even troubling memories, or very happy memories, when these come up, through the absence of grasping, they don't catch and drag your awareness after them, dragging your awareness off to the referent of the images, back to the event in the past, or some happy thought for the future, and so forth. Your awareness just like a Teflon awareness, so free of grasping, clinging, attachment, so loose. And this is where we always come back to that first phase of relaxation. The implications flow all the way through the meditation. That looseness, that ease, that letting go that we're doing in phase one of mindfulness of breathing, we're going to absolutely need that in settling the mind in its natural state. Because it will be precisely by that, that looseness, that ease, that relaxation also, that you're able to simply be present with whatever comes up without being drawn into the drama, either for, you know, as a positive drama or a negative drama. So as that is the case, we're attending to the space of the mind and its contents, which again will start on Thursday. Here we're doing the prelude to that, something a bit more tangible, easy to find. Some people find the space of the mind difficult to find. Where is it? How big is it? And so forth. Whereas the space of the body, pretty easy. That's pretty, pretty straightforward. And so you're tending to the space of the body. But now within this, if we recall, I mean, for those of you who really have a background in Buddhism, you will recall three types of suffering, right? Blatant suffering, suffering of change, and then this more, just more ubiquitous, extensive suffering. Uh, and that third one, that ubiquitous, extensive suffering of conditioned phenomena, um, which is really kind of our ground level of suffering, it's, that's what Buddha Dharma is all about. It's, it can be applied for stress reduction and making a happier day and better sex life and better performance in athletics and business and creativity and all that kind of stuff. But what the Buddha Dharma is really about at its core is addressing that deepest dimension of suffering, which is our fundamental vulnerability to the suffering, right? Even beyond the suffering of change. It's a deeper dimension of that. And if you receive classic teachings on, well, what is the nature of that? What's the nature of that fundamental vulnerability of suffering that, that per- permeates all of our experience? 
in the desire realm, form realm, formless realm. What's the nature of it? What's the essence of it? Zakya nyewaralembe pombo. The contaminated, closely held skandhas. Contaminated, why? Because our whole experience is uh, of them is bound up with mental afflictions. Not contaminated because of bad breath or something like that. But it's coming from, conditioned by mental afflictions and the karma generated by mental afflictions. So that's the zakjit contaminated part. That it's, it's caught up in, contaminated by, tainted by mental afflictions. But this nyewar lemba, nyewar means closely, and lemba means to take, that we, we hold onto, we identify with, hold close, my body, my mind, or my body, my feelings, mental states, and so forth. And it's that very holding close that sets us up for vulnerability to all manner of suffering. So this practice of Vipassana is going right to that, directly. And so as we are now about to go, I'm not going to give much more prelude, as we're about to go back to the close application of mindfulness to the body, and specifically within that domain, to feelings. Feelings arising in the body. Then the challenge here as in settling the mind and that distinction between stillness and motion, is to be so loose, so free of grasping, so not holding closely, but just letting be. So there's a mudra, holding closely. Right? Mine, mine, my country, my spouse, my body, my car, my, 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 holding closely. And if there was a mudra to just letting be, it would be something like this. Perhaps. Just being present with. Not, and again, not contraction, not recoil, not dissociation, and not plunging into either by way of grasping. Just being present with, luminously, clearly discerning. But if you can see as you observe the four elements arising in the body, and then especially as you observe the feelings, because that is our, our topic for the day, the feelings arising in the body, insofar as you can observe them without your awareness moving, Right? without recoil, and which, which then, in just ordinary English, without preference. Because that is exactly the practice in settling the mind in its natural state. Happy thoughts, unhappy, virtuous, non-virtuous, what have you, since in total absence of grasping onto all of them, the ideal there is to have zero preference. In this context, preference, I want that kind of that kind of image and that kind of thought, don't want that emotion, want that desire, not that one, and so forth, all of those are expressions of grasping. So in settling the mind in its natural state, when it says settle your awareness without distraction, without grasping, it's, that's really, really a core element of it. Without preference, let alone without superimposing I and mind, but even without preference. It's so loose. So again, as an analogy, imagine being radiantly clear radiantly lucid in a dream. I mean, you've nailed it. You've so thoroughly comprehended the dream that you see that your own embodiment in the dream, other people's bodies, everything taking place in the dream, you just, you really have fathomed it. You are an accomplished dream yogi or yogini, right? And your insight is so deep that you really know that this is just like looking at an array of mirages or rainbows or reflections in a mirror. You simply know not intellectually, but you really know experientially, there's nothing there from the side of anything that appears in the dream. Now, from the waking state, we know that. Oh yeah, you're just dreaming. That means there wasn't anything there. But when you're in the midst of the dream, you don't know that at all. That's right. 
right? And so imagine that you really are deeply awake, thoroughly awake within the dream. And so not only the people, the situations you're encountering objectively, but your own presence, that persona of you in the dream, who has a very short lifespan, maybe 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour, 90 minutes kind of on the tops, maybe two hours, but that's totally maxed out, according to sleep and dreamers, researchers. Longest dream, maybe two hours, but that's really unusual. So that's your lifespan of that little persona in the dream. You're like a, you know, that's that's shorter than a gnat or a housefly, right? That's a really short lifespan. And so there you are, but you're aware that that little you, that little persona in the dream, that there's nothing there from your own side. Any more than if, if Miles were in my dream, there would be nothing there from his own side. The way His Holiness does it, and I really, it, it, get, it gets me. If I were dreaming right now, and, I, and so there's Miles appearing to be you know, substantial. But his, as his holiness points, he says, Zugudzuksa. It's your, what, that which you're pointing your finger at. So if I'm really lucid in the dream, I'd point my finger at Miles and say, that, you know, that, that, which I'm pointing my finger at, which really seems to be there from his own side, is totally empty. There's nothing there at all from his own side. So if you've really fathomed that in the dream, that means you're very, very lucid. Then, you, then it's obvious, if there's nothing even there from its own side, there's no possibility of something that's not there from its own side harming me in many, any way. But then if you go to the zukuzuksa, the pointing the finger here, nothing. An appearance, yes, of course. But there's nothing here from its own side. So now, if we have nothing versus nothing, how much damage can be done? You know, who's going to damage who? So if you have that kind of insight, you really are living, you're just kind of in a flow of the passionate within your dream. Right? Then number one, you're going to be fearless, right? Because you know there simply is nothing whatsoever to fear. It'd be like going out and being afraid of rainbows. But you think it's going to catch you in the eye like, Oh, I hate it when Abel jabs me in the eye. You know, it's like you're fearless, but not only you're fearless, but when you, if you're really there as a scientist, if you're just keenly interested in even perhaps even more thoroughly fathoming the nature of dream reality, then whatever comes up, you can imagine perhaps being totally without preference. Totally without preference. You're simply observing whatever comes up, but you can be without preference because you're fearless. And you're fearless because you know there is no possibility of harm. And why? It's so simple. That is, can you be harmed in a dream? Sure. You can be physically harmed in a dream. You can really hurt. Somebody can punch you and it can really give you a bad headache or really feel bad or pierce you with a weapon and so forth. It can be very painful. Even in a dream, even though we all, we know, we know from the waking, say, yeah, how, how is that possible? But it is. You can feel physically bad. You can be injured in a dream. And then emotionally, of course. No difference. No difference. So is it possible to be physically and mentally harmed within a dream by other people in the dream or situations in the dream? Sure. So much so that if you wake up from a really rotten dream, maybe a nightmare, a traumatic dream, miserable, anguished dream, it can ruin your day. If it was really vivid, it can linger right through the morning. Say, oh, how are you? Oh, really cruddy. You had such a terrible dream. How are things this morning? Great, but the dream last night really sucked. So the emotional overflow 
and carried right into a waking state. We know that, yeah? And so, how is that possible? How can nothing harm nothing and leave such a residue that it can ruin your morning or even ruin your day? Who knows how? Exactly. There's the mudra. It's grasping. Coming from not knowing and then misapprehending, reifying self, reifying everything else, now you're just ready to suffer in any which way, including somebody can just grimace at you. Oh, I respected him so much and he thinks I'm a jerk. Oh, oh. So a grimace can ruin your day. A grimace of somebody who doesn't exist. That's pretty wimpy. Right? But it's true, isn't it? I remember somebody attending the Dalai Lama, attending teaching, I think by the Dalai Lama. Oh, it was, that was that. And it just made her day. She, she told me afterwards, he looked at me. He looked at me. He looked. My eyes, his eyes. Really made her day. And then on another occasion, she was attending some class of mine. And she was very wounded. She said, Alan, you didn't look at me. She was very upset. Uh, I wasn't making any point. I was just doing what I'm doing, like right now. But I imagine right now I haven't looked at haven't looked at Mary yet. There she's grieving. We can tell. Why hasn't he looked at me? What's wrong with me? So even not looking at a person, let alone like that. But even I haven't looked at Danny either. Not gonna. Not gonna. Not gonna look at Danny. Even not looking can ruin your day. That's how fragile we are with grasping. So it's simple, isn't it? So here's what we're, here's what we're going. I said it'd be short. Well, okay, now we wrap up. Now we're going to the, and you do believe me, don't you? I'm sure you believe me. Because you're so gullible. <laughs> now we go to the body, and we're going to try to emulate that. We're going to try to be lucid with respect to the body. Try to be lucid as you can. Let you, that distinction between stillness and motion. Bring that stillness of awareness, that Teflon awareness, that awareness free of grasping, but full of mindfulness, clarity, discernment. Attend to the space of the body. But attend whatever's arising with as little grasping as possible, just being present with it, and then we'll run a little experiment in the, in, in the midst of that. It's a surprise experiment. Find a posture. Your whole experience here in retreat will very likely be strongly influenced. If you make a point at the beginning of each session 
to enter with the spirit of loving kindness. To be here not simply to follow a discipline, to work hard, but to do something wonderful for yourself. And the first thing is to set your body and mind at ease. To let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Settle your body in its natural state. Relax, still, and vigilant. Then we turn our attention to the breathing. We're still alive, so we may think, I already know how to breathe, I need no instruction there. Let's get on with it. And of course we know how to breathe. But do we know how to let the body breathe? Apart from those occasions when we're deep asleep. So once again, Relax deeply and let go completely with every out-breath. If you are ruminating at the end of the, in- end of the out-breath, you will very likely inhale prematurely before you really need to. As you come to the end of the outbreath, be very quiet. And completely release the breath until there's nothing more to give away. Then as if you're receiving a gift, without even reaching out and taking it, but simply receiving it in open palms. Receive the gift of the next in-breath, flowing in of its own accord, and receive just what's given without taking any more. And give back what you don't need as you breathe out.
And now setting your mind at ease, releasing all rumination. Let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment, clearly illuminating the space of the body. Illuminate the sensations associated with earth, water, fire, and air. These appearances that arise objectively to your tactile perception. Just as colors and shapes appear objectively to your visual perception. Then closely apply mindfulness to the affective ways you experience these sensations arising within the field of the body. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Clearly distinguish experientially between the objective appearances, the tactile sensations themselves, earth, water, fire, air, on the one hand, and the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. See that the feelings themselves are not intrinsic to the objective appearances. They're not simply presented to you. They are in your mode of experience. The way you apprehend 
the sensations arising within the field of the body. Clearly recognize the different types of feelings. But to the best of your ability, without preference, without grasping, without identifying with them, and observe them nakedly, without superimposing upon them mental images, labels, constructs, non-conceptually. Simply observe the feelings arising from moment to moment as they nakedly present themselves to you. Move from shamatha to vipassana, introduce a question, some element of inquiry, probing into the nature of the phenomena you're attending to. These feelings, are they static, unchanging? Or are they arising moment by moment? You may know the answer intellectually, but now pose it experientially.
as you closely observe the feelings. See if you can determine whether they are absolutely as they appear. That is, is the unpleasant absolutely, objectively, without any context, with no relativity? Unpleasant, exactly to the degree to which it appears. In other words, is the magnitude of the pleasant, unpleasant, for that matter, neutral feelings you experience, is this an intrinsic element or aspect of the feeling itself? Or is that magnitude, the quality, relative to experiences outside of itself? Probe right into the very nature of the feeling. Penetrate as if with a laser and see if you can determine their intrinsic nature. How they are all on their own. You must do this with a quiet mind. Clear, radiant and sharp. If, for example, there are unpleasant feelings arising in the body, and if they are intrinsically, absolutely unpleasant, then the more penetrating you focus focus right in upon their core, the more intense you should experience the unpleasantness of that feeling. Is that so or not? Explore. Now here's the other side of the experiment. If, for example, there are unpleasant feelings arising in any part of the body, focus your attention on on that part. Now just the opposite of what we did previously. Visualize the part of the body that feels uncomfortable. Imagine it. 
and tell yourself, this feels awful. This is really uncomfortable. I really don't like this at all. I hope it doesn't get worse. Elaborate, ruminate, develop it. Lay on the conceptual projection, all negative. As if you were a hypochondriac. And does this or does this not influence your experience of the discomfort itself? Examine closely. you do this, does the discomfort increase, decrease, or remain the same? Now terminate that experiment. Once again, let your mind be utterly silent, clear, as free of grasping as possible, letting your awareness be like space. Let it simply illuminate the sensations and feelings arising in the body, as free as possible from preference, from the superimposition of I, and mind.
or lesson. Let's start with the truism. And that is, if we really want something, and then it appears to us, we're happy, and we think that's something good. A really good example of that occurred to me is fame. Fame. Somebody, some people really like to be the object of other people's attention, like to be in the limelight, like, like a lot of people attending to them, um, and other people really just don't. They would much prefer to be invisible. I was with Richard Gere once years ago, and we were in an auditorium, something was over in here, and I was just chatting together, and, and then a paparazzi came up and won probably the photo or whatever. And I could just see that from Richard, Richard's body language, like, oh. You know, like, will it never end? You know, he's been famous so long that you, you imagine he got much of a thrill. Oh, somebody wants to take my picture. <laughs> it was just the, you know, you can imagine. It was just like, oh, he was being gracious, but he really, you know, didn't have much time for that. Whereas if you're just starting your career as an actor and you're hoping to one day become as famous as Richard Gere and a paparazzi comes to you, oh, yeah, come on, how, how much time would you like? You know, and it's the same paparazzi. Right, but because you desire it, it it appears to be pleasant, right? And that's true, isn't it? Much more broadly than that. That's just a good example, I think. And so, it is it not also also the case as so? Richard Gere did not find that a pleasant experience. He would prefer that person not to come, because he and I are having just nice short conversation. Is it not also the case that when we don't want something, and then it appears? then lo and behold, it appears undesirable because we didn't desire it. So insofar as we can release the desire, then it's simply an appearance, and insofar as we can release the aversion, it's just an appearance. That gets very up close and personal within the body. But there's something very empowering here, that we are not simply the victims of the appearances, including the feelings that arise in the space of the body. So anybody have any interesting experience when you try to probe into the the nucleus of unpleasant feeling to find if you could find something that's 100% absolutely disagreeable? Or when you did just the opposite, you kind of went zoomed out and then just like a dump truck piled on images, labels, dislike, imagination, and so forth and so on. Either way, did it have any impact on your experience of the feeling itself? Anybody? Yes, Titi. Yeah, what was what was your experience? Uh, I had a very unpleasant feeling with pain. Yeah. And I went <laughs> right into it and really uh, made it worse by thinking, you know, I hope I don't get into a wheelchair again and I hope I, you mm. know, all of this. And it got so much worse. Yeah. It just, you know, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. And then on the other hand, it disappeared. Yeah. It vanished. At, on the other hand, when I... You know, it didn't, and I had this experience now a couple of times during these days. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it can, when I don't fuse with it, call it my, my pain, my ribs and everything, it goes away. It, it's mm-hmm. not, it doesn't, where does it go? Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah. it's not, it's not there. And it's, it's, it's also a choice. It's, a, I have a choice. Well, that's the, the par- profound message of the experiment is that you do actually have a choice. That is, when I hold up my my hand and you see the color of my palm, you have no choice. You may want to see it purple or have my palm be invisible, but really you have no choice. If your eyes are open, 
That's what you're getting. Right? You have no choice at all. Isn't it true? Yeah. And likewise, you have no choice. I mean, there's a sound, and it's coming to you. It's, it's a given. Delivered in your lap. But the feeling is not like that. And so I think there's clear empirical evidence that the feeling is not simply presented. It's an emotive apprehension. But it's, since it's an emotive apprehension, then how we are apprehending is very much within our own hands that we can certainly modify. So there's a, so thank you, Titi. I mean, that was, I wasn't surprised, but I'm delighted with your response. It's a very important discovery, right? And there's a statement, too, to make this very practical, and then I think what we'll do is open up to questions, comments from you all, and then come back to some written, so I don't always go to the written first. But there's one, one line from Shantideva's sixth chapter, that, that is a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life, patience chapter. I memorized a long time ago, probably about 40 years ago, and it really stuck with me. It's very short. And that is in Tibetan, it's Komna Laur Mingyurwe. It's, it's two lines. Komna Laur Mingyurwe, Mopokaya Yumayi. There's nothing whatsoever that does not become easier with familiarization. As you accustom yourself to it. Right? Is there nothing that is through the process of familiarization, habituation, becoming accustomed to, everything can become easier. So he's, he's couching that or putting, inserting that, that line in this patient's chapter. So this is a good application of it. For most of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, but for most of us in this short session, the degree of discomfort in the body was probably not intense. I mean, I didn't hear anybody screaming. You know? I would really ask you to, you know, find another posture if that's happening. But, I imagine quite a number of people felt some degree of discomfort, but not just, you know, white hot screaming pain, right? Have you ever experienced incredibly intense pain? Probably have if you've been around long enough, sure. And so in terms of developing this wisdom, developing this skill, learning how to release grasping, we don't wait for some intense pain and then start practicing there. We'll be overwhelmed by it, right? But if we can take an itch, that's about as trivial as it gets. Like, oh, I'd like to... Oh, there's a... I think that's... Yeah, it's an itch. Yep. Yep, it is an itch. Ah, yeah. I think that feels a tiny bit better. Okay? That's about as lightweight as it gets. An itch is un- it, unpleasant, right? That's why you want to scratch it. It's hard to imagine a less... How do you say? Less magnitude of... I think that itches. Yeah, I feel a little bit better. Okay. Start with an itch. And so you can handle, yes, I'm itch-proof. I experience the itch, but it's just arising in space. Now it's subsiding. And then go from there to something pretty intense. I think it's literally true. It's a story I heard, I think it was Gyatra Dambuchi. And he, a man of impeccable honesty, one of my root, my core lamas, core lamas, Dzogchen lama, Baba. Oh, he told me of a lama that was in Tibet during the Cultural Revolution had to be. He was very accomplished, captured by the Chinese communists, imprisoned, tortured. And there, it often happened, almost, almost as if they were religious zealots, these Cultural Revolution, you know, these, uh, they were, they were zealots. They wouldn't call themselves religious zealots, but they really behaved like it. Because with this particular element, and it wasn't the only case by any means, it continues to this day, but the, the people who captured this Lama and tortured him, they 
they tortured him and he said, we will stop the torture. All you have to do is say, I renounce the Buddha. That's all I have to do. Just, just say that. They just wanted to break his will. They wanted to show that we can conquer you. You are a conquered people. You're one of the spiritual leaders of these people. And say that, and then you'll demonstrate we have conquered you. Right? Say the words, and then we'll stop the torture. And the torture was they actually literally nailed him to the side of a wall. Not to a cross, but they nailed him. So there he was, spread, spread eagle like a fly, on a wall, a wooden wall. And he was that spread eagle there, nailed. And they said, we'll lift you down, and we'll heal, you know, we'll put salve on your wounds. Just say the words. And of course he wouldn't. And his disciples came to him. And they were, they were in tears. I mean, they were in anguish seeing their Lama being, you know, tortured in this way. And they came to him. And they said, Lama, please, we all know you. We know your faith in the Dharma. We know you would never reject the Buddha. We know, we know, we know. So give them the words. The words don't mean anything at all. Just say the words. Because we don't care. We know perfectly. But we'd love to take you down and try to heal you. So please just say the words. And the Lama smiled at them and said, how can I, how can I say the words, I reject the Buddha? I am a Buddha. Pretty good punchline. So, if this Lama was in a radiantly lucid dream, that is, as far as we're concerned, it, that actually took place. But from his perspective, if he was seeing this so lucidly, the non-inherent existence of the tortures, the wall, the nails, his body, and so forth. He's seeing this all as empty of inherent nature. If he's lucid, he's, if he's actually viewing this, and the chances are extremely high that he was, he was viewing this whole situation from the perspective of Rikpa, which means he was awake during what we euphemistically call the waking state. Then, he's awake. And it's just an empty apparition that appears to be nailed on a wall with the pain, the physical discomfort, arising in space with no owner. And so he can look with total relaxation, with ease, with a smile, and say, how can I, how can I reject the Buddha? As if he's talking over a cup of tea. So you don't start there. <laughs> you start with the itch. And then you gradually move along. But if you don't start with the itch, then you can be 85 years old and say, these itches are killing me. I can't stand it. I have one itch after another. I hate my life. It's just one thing after another. Life is suffering. Be a total wimp forever. So start now, especially young guys and young ladies. Where's that young lady? There's young, at least one young lady here. Doesn't matter. There, 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 well, there's a number of young ladies. <laughs> All I'm talking about is young, not gender. Start young. Right? Because man, it's so possible. It is so possible to age gracefully, nobly, with wisdom, with joy. It really is possible. Really possible. To just grow in wisdom, grow in depth, grow in compassion, grow in happiness. Genuine happiness, right up to death point. And it's also possible to grow old miserably.
Start early. Start early. Oh, yeah. So, comments, questions, insights, anything from your side. What's up? Anything going on? Yes, we'll start with Jen. Right over here. Alan, I have a question about this practice. Mm. It seems like when I'm observing the feelings associated with the sensations, it seems like most of the feelings are neutral. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure whether that's correct or whether I'm not looking at it carefully enough. Um, could you just speak sure. a little about that? <coughs> sure. I, won't, I would not try to second-guess your feelings. If you're experiencing them as neutral, then I would say I'll take your word for it. Um, Medically speaking, also, it's quite an, I think it's a very interesting point, because feelings are quite coarse. I mean, they're just kind of really obvious. But medically speaking, there is no 100%, let's say, way of measuring with certainty, that is, way of measuring with 100% certainty from outside any medical test that will determine beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are or are not experiencing pain. And I, find, I find that quite interesting. I mean, they know so much about the nerve, ner the nervous system and the brain and parts of the brain and all of that, all of that. And we, given all of that, they still, number one, they cannot measure pain, but they can't determine with certainty whether you're even experiencing it. So it just shows that, you know, there's just no evidence that it's physical at all, which means you are the expert. That's what I'm getting at. I'm not really here to beat up on neuroscience. Everything has limitations. So you, when you're experiencing pain, don't know what part of your brain is being activated. And certainly parts of the brain are being activated. Um, but there it is. You're the expert on that. So that most of them neutral, not at all surprising. You've been meditating for a while, so not much discomfort, maybe none at all, especially if in the supine position. Maybe no discomfort at all. Maybe it's just kind of hunky-dory. This is why we're doing a practice here, but it's this is a practice almost that it, it really is inviting us to take this out into our in-between sessions. right? Because as we're walking around in, in 24 minutes or so, no, 34 minutes or so. Um, we're going to be having, or shortly thereafter, we're going to have be having things going into our mouths. And hopefully you will have chosen well. So when you're experiencing taste, tactile sensations, earth, water, fire, air, etc., your way of experiencing the tactile sensations as well as the taste will be in a pleasurable fashion. right? And so then you'll have something coming up. Or maybe you'll get one of those little hot chili peppers that you hadn't seen coming in, and that'll give you a surprise. And so another kind of feeling will arise, okay? But certainly, when you're there, and things are going down in your mouth, and you're masticating and so forth, probably when you're maybe only 20, 40, 50 feet away, you'll already pick up fragrance. And you'll experience it as pleasant or unpleasant, or neutral. So this is a practice where, bearing in mind the feeling includes the whole physical world, that a lot of the emphasis here really should be on post-meditative. That is, when we're not in formal practice and extending it beyond our skin, all right? So in the, the visual, so I'm really inviting you now here, now fill out your post-meditative experience or your non-formal practice as you're attending visually, and you see anything as being pleasant, anything as agreeable, beautiful, attractive, or unattractive, disagreeable, disgusting, then observe there. It's such an important point. This is really where we live, and this has a lot of impact. Implications are deep. That the feeling is not in the object. Some people speak very loudly. I know some people. I mean, they fill the room, booming. Some people find that very disagreeable. 
oh, I can't stand this person. Person's so loud, so brash. Just, ah, it, it gets on my nerves. As if I just described that person. It really sounds like it, doesn't it? This person, boom, boom, boom. And other people may refer, the same person said, I just love listening to that person. It's so lively. The person's larger than life. Just really inspires me, invigorates me. I just, I just can't take, I just can't get enough. I just love hearing this person talk. So now we talk about two different people, right? So whether it's a person conversing, whether it's the weather, whether it's sounds that we hear, whether it's smells, tastes, and so forth. Durian is my favorite example of that. You know, different ways of perceiving the same taste. Uh, some of them unimaginable from my perspective. Um, and so, but to be doing this in, be- in between sessions for all of the five senses, we'll get to the mental again in a couple of days, very, very useful, very, very useful. And then to be probing into it and see, is it really there in the nature of the object? So it takes the, the point from Titi and now elaborates this, out, 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 so that we can be, in, in a kind of odd kind of way, we are seeking a type of objectivity, that we have our perspective. Some people like durian simply, some people don't. And neither one of those is better or worse than the other. You shouldn't try to convert. You know, whatever you are, you don't need to convert to my side. That's just my limitation. I would like to be able to enjoy all kinds of fruits. I can't. I'd rather eat puree of moldy socks <laughs> than eat durian. I mean, really, it's going like, and other people have an advantage over me because they actually put it in their mouths and smile. So there it is. So to investigate into it, to be able to be objective in the sense of simply being aware of what's coming up and even as feelings arise, because the idea here is not to deaden our feeling. That's very important. I think it's sometimes a really awful misapprehension, especially of Theravada Buddhism. It's not Theravada Buddhism. But I, I get the impression some people think that's what it is, is don't have the feelings about... I mean, I actually saw one text where the translator translated klesha as emotion. Which the ideal would be, have no kleshas, of course, and therefore have no emotions. And then we'll take a photo of you. So terrible, that's the worst translation I think I've seen in any Buddhist text. Klesha equals emotion. Awful. Awful. So, there we are. So, here we don't have a lot. This is why I didn't say during the session, and I won't do it tomorrow either, Okay, now bring your awareness to the visual. Okay, got it. Nothing much happening, you know. And then the auditory, okay, air conditioning, air conditioning. You know. So not much to work with. That's why I didn't even go there. At least there's more interesting things happening, uh, happening with inside the body. But the practice then is simply to attend to it and to practice as before and not try to modify it. Okay? Good. Anything over here? Yes, we'll start with Birgit and we'll go to Elizabeth. Yeah, I have a question concerning quality of meditation. Um, when the quality is bad, for example, the mind is very excited or very sleepy, mm-hmm. and then I apply antidotes yeah. and it doesn't work, mm-hmm. uh, is it better to um, interrupt the session or do you go on, struggle on? I oh, mean, I like just struggling indefinitely myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some good Germanic blood in me. You know, We know how to struggle. Or Russians, I think especially. Russians really know how to struggle. I think they're professional strugglers for centuries. They have a lot of things to struggle with. So, of course, I'm speaking in jest. Um, there's a, it's a middle way. 
It's a middle way. And that is, so the practice is not going optimally. Okay. No big surprise there. <laughs> if your practice goes optimally, there's no reason for you to be in this retreat. You know, you should be teaching me. Maybe you should be teaching me anyway. But in any case, this is for people who, whose practice isn't going optimally, and that's why you fly across the world to, you know, have it go a little bit more optimally. <coughs> so we see, for example, in shamatha, of course, excitation and laxity, the two obvious imbalances. And so we apply antidotes. Are they not working at all? And that's a possibility. On occasion, they just may not work at all. In which case, then you might consider there are other antidotes. You've, you've, you know Tsongkhapa inside and out. You know his Lamrim. You know, he doesn't just say, you know, relax, release, and return with respect to excitation. He gives more than that, you know, because he draws so heavily on his powerful intelligence and discursive meditation, as he rightly should. And likewise for laxity, more than refresh, refocus, and retain, he said, hey, how about just some discursive meditations? How about getting some enthusiasm back? How about bringing some lightness? And so forth. So he brings in discursive meditation. So there's a whole range there. Um, so it's looking for the middle way, and that is not giving up too quickly, but not just struggling, struggling, that it feels like you're just burrowing into heavy, heavy, heavy. You know, That's clearly self-defeating. Um, and then a final point, and that is it's very easy to evaluate our meditative practice on how it's going more in terms of like objective appearances, as if. I wouldn't say it's simply that, but more like. Like just the weather happening to us. Oh, this session really went well. The, you know, the mind was this, and that mind was this, and so forth. And so, oh, I really like the next session. Oh, not so good. And so it's very easy to evaluate on simply how it seems to be going, how it's rising up to meet us, so to speak, but a much more valuable way to evaluate meditation and overall spiritual practice is what was the quality of my engagement with the practice? What was the quality of my engagement? Not how did it go once I was engaging, but if I get into my session, and let's say it's a 24-minute session, and after 15 minutes, uh, it's kind of comfortable, you know, kind of, it's not too bad, and I'm finding just kind of comfortable, yeah, well, whatever, oh, some rumination here, well, but a rumination never hurt anybody. And blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah. <laughs> you know, if I've kind of lost interest, gone soft, slack, sloppy, and then afterwards you say, how did the practice go? Quite peaceful. <laughs> Who needs that? That was, that was a total disaster. And it felt kind of nice. You know, so it's more the matter of engagement. I mean, what's the quality? So people often ask me, how long should the session go? How long should your session go? I'll give a short answer, answer to that question right now. And that is if, let's say, let's say you start with a 24-minute session and you check the level of engagement, how interested, how engaged, I can't find a better word than that, but how engaged are you with the practice? That is, applying mindfulness, remembering introspection, remembering the antidotes, let's say for shamatha. And this is all I'm doing whether I'm doing it well, mediocre, or poorly, I'm giving it my best shot. You know, and here I am. And then 12 minutes later, that same level of interest, that's a nice word, same level of engagement, commitment to the practice, still there. 
And then when you're in the twenty in the twenty-fourth minute, the final minute of the session, still there, still engaged, interest, committed to it, still giving it your best shot, then good, that's fine. If after sixteen minutes the engagements you've kind of gotten bored, you don't really care that much, kind of get slack, and I say cut it off at sixteen minutes. Because we don't want to make this is again Sonkaba. Don't make a habit of bad habits. Because we can really make a habit of being sloppy. That doesn't mean that every session has to be really, really good. Otherwise, we're just going to break the sessions. Oh, this isn't going so well. Off to the pool. Oh, that one didn't go well. Time for ice cream. Whoop. Time to, you know. <laughs> you know. That's an extreme. So we always find the middle way by, by identifying the extremes, right? And so the meditation session itself is like a little microcosm. And that is, we cannot determine from session to session, how will this session go? Will the stability be really good? Clarity be really good? And so, we can't determine that. We can't simply decide, I'm going to give it my best shot, therefore it's going to be really good. Not necessarily. You could have indigestion, there could be something physiological coming up, it could be, you could have just opened up a whole pocket of emotions, memories, and so forth, as you're dredging your psyche, that are just spewing lava into the space of your mind, and you say, I didn't invite that. I didn't want that. Where did this come from? <laughs> it was going so well. <laughs> and that's how the shamatha practice goes. It spews up stuff on it, and that's what it's supposed to do. right? It doesn't just go smoothly and then go better and better and better. And so when your mind goes into the term, is it, the English translation is eruption. When your mind erupts into, sometimes erupting into mud, into just dullness, just flat-out dullness. And other times, of course, rumination, emotions, desires, and so forth and so on. The most important thing is, how are you dealing with it? And if you see within the context of the session, um, nothing that I'm applying is working. I'm very intent. I'm very engaged. I'm very interested. I would like to be remedying these. And I'm throwing everything I can at it, and it's not working. Then in that same spirit of loving-kindness that brought you into the session, the same spirit of loving-kindness brings you out. Because the last thing we want to do is defeat ourselves. Here, it's really as if we'd, it would be just wonderful to be very loving parents to ourselves. The optimal parents to ourselves. Always there to help, to nurture, to encourage. Some discipline, of course, but never tyrannical. Never just pushing or forcing. Always in a spirit of loving-kindness. So just lovingly going right through the practice. And that means if you say, yep, this session is not working. For whatever reason, I don't know. But this one's not working. I it's not working? Good. Then okie dokie. You know? That one didn't work. I gave it my best. And the best was not good enough for what was being thrown up. So it's time for a walk. It's time for a swim. It's time for some maybe some reading. Something else. Maybe it's some devotional practice. Maybe mantra. Something else. And so then there's that, that flexibility. Okay? So the short answer is the degree of engagement. That's what's really easy. What's, what's really central. And then seeing is the level of engagement really working. Now, a foot, footnote on that point. And that is especially when I've been very, very, very deeply involved in something. Like study, writing, something creative. There can be, or something just occurred, maybe some uh, event that stirs up a lot of emotions. Here's another point, just a little, is a little, in the Rolodex, in the kind of background. Something really disturbing comes up. And they say, okay, yeah, the mind is really quite disturbed, quite, quite agitated. And then saying, all right, 
I'm going to go into supine position and I'm just going to be mellowing out as much as I can and every out-breath, whatever's coming up in the mind, anger, resentment, craving, whatever it may be, every out-breath, I'm just going to go... And I know perfectly well this is not going to be one of my best meditation sessions. Because of what I'm bringing to it. My mind is really disturbed. This person said this. This person did that. And that really got to me. But instead of just then going around ruminating, 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 and you know perpetuating the problem, say, okay, I'm going to the supine position. I'm going to the earth element. And I'm just going to breathe and release and release and release. And I'm going to get as mellow as I can, knowing that in terms of quality of session, this won't be good. Because of what I'm bringing to it. In the path from prior to the session. But then check to see. This is what I find very interesting. Even if you say, was that a really good session in terms of stability, clarity? Oh, no way. But when you come out of the session, is your mind more relaxed, more composed, more balanced? In other words, did the medicine work? That's pretty important. So it may not have been a very pleasant session and maybe not great stability or clarity. But if, versus coming in and coming out, you feel the mind is more more relaxed, more composed, more clear, greater emotional equilibrium, then that was a successful session. We don't, so we don't always, we shouldn't be fair weather. You know the phrase, fair weather friends? You know, the, yes, everybody knows it's an English phrase, but friends who are really friendly with you only when everything's just fine. But if you're feeling bad or you're broke or you're troubled, oh, well, let me know when you're better, you know. Okay, that's a fair weather friend, right? And so don't be a fair weather, don't be a fair weather meditator. I'm not quite feeling optimal, but after I come back from the beach, maybe. <laughs> or maybe after a few drinks. You know? Or after that movie, I'm sure I'll feel better. And if I don't, well, I can always listen to the music. Or at least just before sleeping. That'd be silly. Dharma is the medicine for the afflictions of the mind. Elizabeth? I've often, I've often tried to work with this pain business, and I've always found it very difficult. You know, when the body gets in uptight, when you're I've heard about I've heard that yes. that happens, yeah. Well, today I, I, I knew I was going to get a pain because uh-huh. of the way I sat on purpose. Aha, uh-huh, acha. And a good, good old self-flagellation, I like that. <laughs> Any nail, nails or broken glass, or did you skip that? Bit? No, no, it wasn't a big pain. It was only a little pain, but I was able to really because it wasn't a big one. I could really look at it, yeah. and I realized that I couldn't actually find the pain. I could find the pressure. I could find the things around the pain, but the pain was somehow not in the foot. It was on your skin. No, it was in my mind. What, what did you point to your skin for? My head. And you think your mind's in your head? No. <laughs> <laughs> Habit. <laughs> Habit. Yes, I'll bet you it wasn't in your head. <laughs> if I said my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that would be at least more interesting. <laughs> well, it must have been in, in my mind, in my foot. <laughs> your awareness does permeate the body, that's for sure. Yeah. So, but it, it, I felt it was interesting to it discover interesting. that, even though the pain didn't go away. That is the interesting part. That is the interesting part. And if it's true, I mean, you know, I think pretty much everything that I'm sharing with you in terms of 
maybe not everything, but I would say at least 90% of the ideas, the theories that I'm presenting in this Vipassana sequence lends itself to empirical investigation. You know, even in the context of eight weeks. If I talk about substrate consciousness, previous lives, okay, that's a bit more work. But <laughs> the assertion that, the assertion that feelings are not simply presented like the color of my palm, which is just, there you are, like it or lump it, that's it, because it's an objective appearance. The, the statement that feelings are not that, they're actually in the mode of appearance. So imagine if that's the case, then imagine that, imagine that I find your, your face very pleasant. I do. Find your, it's, it's, you have a pleasant face. You have a nice smile. So there we go. So you know I'm not hitting on you, right? Okay. So there's a pleasant face. And then I say, okay, now, let's take this laser out. I want to see exactly what's pleasant. Is it the nose? Is it the teeth? The eyebrows? Is it the skin color? Uh, can't find it. If it's in the mode of apprehension and you're looking for the object, of course you won't find it. Because it is not there. But nevertheless, we say, oh, she has a pleasant face. Right? We do that, we say that. And in a manner of speaking, okay, what well, we, we know, but often we don't know. We think, no, that that's, you know, durian tastes awful, and she has a lovely, you know, pleasant face. You know? But it's not the case. Other people might look and look at your face and have another feeling. Who knows? You know, people have different feelings. But it's in the mode of apprehension. And therefore, when we look at it, when we probe right into it, See, see if we can find it from its own side objectively, then no big surprise. But it's still there. Yes, it is. And it's still pain. And that yes, was what puzzled me. I thought, I'm seeing it's not there, so it shouldn't be there. But Yeah, well, pain, physical... I mean, I, I do find pain quite interesting. Pain and suffering. Interesting enough to want to pay attention to it. I don't find everything interesting. But this one already means a lot to me. That is, I'm one of those people, I'm one of the sentient beings, you know, it's a big club, I'm a member. And that is, your body should be a healthy, a healthy body, an arhat's healthy body, should be manifesting pain. Otherwise, I, I did see this years ago, a documentary about a little girl, she was like maybe five, six, seven years old, you remember the story? And she had a very rare disease where she could experience no pain in her body. She had no, no feeling at all in her body. Zero from the time she was born. Nothing. She was, her body was a catastrophe. She had already lost one eye by sticking her finger into it. And she blinded herself because she didn't feel bad. And then she would put her hand on burning stove and would not feel anything. So she, she had broken bones. She had, her body was a disaster error. And she had to be, and they, she had to have goggles on her eyes all the time because she might stick her finger in her eye again. You know. And she'd broken bones. She had abrasions. She was just, she had to be attended to all the time. That is not an idea. Any more than that, that Harvard neuroscientist that I've heard about now ad nauseum, who had a stroke and thought it was a non-nirvanic experience. Well, I'm sorry, but she had to learn a little bit more about nirvana. It's not that. She was disabled. She could hardly crawl to the phone. Arhats actually can walk quite well. You know, and they're not disabled. And she was disabled. She couldn't talk. She could hardly move and so forth. So I found that a bit chintzy or a bit cheesy. Cheesy. And I'm not, I'm not ridiculing her stroke. She had a stroke. It's a medical condition. But to say, oh, I had a little glimpse of nirvana. I'm sorry. No, nirvana is better than that. That's not nirvana. So, so your body should be sending you signals. 
if you have a, an infection, viral, bacterial, if you have an injury, if you have an illness. This, this is, this is a, an indication of a healthy body that it sends you signals that catch your attention. And there's nothing that quite catches our attention like pain. You know? And then, of course, when the body's really healthy, overall, even without outside stimulation, like ice cream or you know something really pleasant, a really healthy body tends to be, feel pretty good. Okay. So, it's a good thing. The pain should not disappear. Otherwise, you can be like that little girl. Start plucking out your eyes and so forth. Not a place to go. I'll be right with you. So the pain should be there, but now in the manner in which we experience the pain, does the pain have to be closely held? And now you know not. You start with an itch. And then when you're awake, then you can be nailed to a wall and experience that like an itch. So it's said of Arya Bodhisattva that they can give away their limbs like other people give away vegetables. And they say, until you're not Arya Bodhisattva, don't give away your limbs. You might need them. So there's that, but there's another element here too, and that is mental distress. It's really, it's also a wonderful thing. Now, not always. A friend of mine had a back injury. It was uh, mountain biking, fell, and he had a, a spinal injury. He's a medical doctor, and very, very sincere, very dedicated drama practitioner as well. But it was an injury on his spine that gave rise to chronic pain for which even morphine was no help. Well, that was pain, it looks like, as far as I know, he'll probably have it for the rest of his life. That is not useful pain. Because it's sending him a signal for which there's no useful response. Not morphine, not medication, not exercise, not diet, not meditation, to make the pain go away. Right? Now, can he alter his experience of the pain through meditation? That's his one freedom. But hedonically, can he make that pain just vanish? No, the system isn't perfect. That was sending a message that was no longer useful. It was at one time to get medical attention and see what can be done. Nothing can be done. It would be nice to say, okay, thanks for the message, and now turn it off. That's not possible. Okay, So that's when it's no longer useful. But then we have mental afflictions. And I mentioned before, and not really in jest. It's a wonderful thing that, that delusion, craving, and hostility overall, sooner or later, some of them very sooner, feel bad that they really do afflict the mind. They, we feel unhappy. And it's a wonderful thing. Because if we didn't, then we just have no incentive for ever waking up. We would continue in our non-lucid dream and, and just figure, well, I'm just human after all. Humans get angry. Humans have craving. Humans are selfish. Humans are greedy and arrogant and delusional. But we're just human after all. What's the big deal? And just developing a thick skin for it. You say, yeah, I'm only human after all. What's the big deal? Why, what are you people meditating for? Why don't you do something? Because they develop a thick skin to the symptoms of their own mental afflictions and then have no incentive or perhaps no vision that freedom might actually be a possibility. So it's a wonderful thing that, men, wonderful thing that mental afflictions afflict. Otherwise, we have no incentive to actually heal the mind and wake up to the nature of reality, to become lucid. Jolly good. Final one, perhaps? Yes, Natu. Yeah, I don't have any conclusion about it, but every time I look at the pain, yeah. um, try to find it. So I start traveling in, and then I find the area, 
and then I start going in and then I find an area more specific and I keep going in and in and in and in and you go in so tiny you can't really point I mean let's say pain is a label for this this thing sure. okay fine sure. still um, not only is it you can't point at where exactly it is and the fact you have the feeling you're traveling but also um, its intensity is pulsating is is changing all the time mm -hmm. so you you get quite of um not clear picture really mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know i'm calling this pain and it's nothing it's something that moves and moves all the time and travels in different mm -hmm. depth and and places but yeah. but you uh still i was wondering with this if the pain doesn't really go away why does it have to be like what you say that pain can't be useful for um, meditation why can't it be an object of concentration i mean if you can if you can just see i don't really understand what you mean by mode of apprehension why you know when you guide well, us simply the way of experiencing just that so say it feels unpleasant mm -hmm. say you can you can stop seeing that as unpleasant, but you really can identify what it is you, you're looking at. Even though it's pulsating and you know that if you go deep, it, mm -hmm. it, you can travel a long way. Mm -hmm. Why can't it be? Why does it, why is it that with shamatha pain is just a bother and it can't be helpful? Aha. That's always been my experience that for shamatha, Pain is simply a distraction. I've never heard any teacher in any tradition ever say, oh, among the various objects of meditation for shamatha practice, here's one, pain. I've never heard that. Tenzin Having said, said Say again? Tenzin Thalmo said she used pain for her practice. Oh, I didn't say that, though. And that's what I didn't say. Did she say that she used it as her, for her practice for shamatha? Context made me believe that, but that might be wrong. It's possible, and and you and I know her. You may very well know her well, uh, better than I. Um, I would say that would be. I would have no reason to choose that pain as an object of shamatha. But I'm very specific here. As an object of shamatha, I would much rather focus, for example, since I have a choice, on the clear and the clear and cognitive nature of awareness. Since I have a choice. And that's just kind of like just cutting right through the psyche and the body to something at a deeper level, the ascertainment of which can really be very helpful. But now having said that, so now we broaden it, and now to a totally different statement. Can the focus on pain be helpful for practice? Can it be helpful for meditative practice? Unequivocally, yes. No doubt about it. And that is Vipassana. Vipassana. Close application of mindfulness to feelings. If you don't have any pain, then you can't do this practice right. Because the practice has to cover the whole bandwidth, at least some discomfort, even if it's not agony or excruciating pain. And you must be able to attend to the neutral and to the positive, to, to pleasant feeling. That's grist for the mill. That's, that's what you're focusing on. So this is where you get the insights into impermanence, into the nature of dukkha, into the nature of not-self. 
uh, there's a there's a marvelous lojong. It's called Transforming Felicity and Adversity into the Spiritual Path. It's a text I translated. Uh, with, and then and then Sangha Kondo translated Gautama's commentary to it. And he makes a comment that people have, um, how do you say, people, people, practitioners can, it's common for people to be able to bear a lot of suffering, but it's felicity they have a hard time with. It's, it's more difficult for them to handle, you know, pleasant. Because when things are going pleasantly, then we just roll back and say, let, let the good times roll. I, who needs Dharma? I'm having a nice time, you know? So, and that's, and I've, I've read this by a Jewish historian, excellent history of the Jewish people. And he made that same comment about Jewish people, which I think is a statement about humanity. And that he says that Jews have an extraordinary, historically speaking, as an observation, I don't think it was biased at all. He has, he says, we really know how to, to handle adversity. It brings out the best in us. We, we've, we've experienced it for centuries and centuries, and we do well in adversity. We know how to handle, handle it. It's good times we don't know how to handle. You know? And there's some truth to that. And he's speaking for his segment. Yeah, okay, knowledge you say for all of humanity. So just for starters, for sure, this can give rise to very, very deep insight, which can be transformative and liberating. And as we go through the second cycle, again, I have no qualms about giving sneak previews. When we hear this statement from Madhyamaka, central uh, middle way view, that all phenomena are empty of inherent nature, they have no intrinsic identity in and of themselves, irrespective of context, independent of context, including conceptual designation. Our feelings included. Yeah, they're phenomena. <laughs> he said everything, from elementary particles up to Buddha mind. That's the classic statement in Madhyamak, perfection of wisdom. From elementary particles, or the basic constituents of, tiniest constituents of physical reality, up to Buddha mind. Everything, including the two ends, are all empty of inherent nature. If that's true, then pain, physical pain in the body, mental pain like depression, anguish, grief, and so forth, they have no intrinsic identity of their own at all. They are empty. And one way of discovering that, and we ran a little trial experiment, is if all of these phenomena arise relative to conceptual designation, how about withdrawing the conceptual designation? That was kind of easy. Except for sometimes it seems almost like it's screaming for it. Call me pain. Call me pain. Please, any time now. Call me pain. What if, what if we don't? And we just peer right into its nature and we just see emptiness. And then we go out zoom lens as in a lucid dream. As in a lucid dream. And then with this equal release of grasping, but allowing ourselves in conventional reality, allowing ourselves to say, is Natu here? Oh, oh yeah, there she is. Conventionally true, right? Now, if I look for her, is she her skin, her chest, her head, her heart, her brain, her mind? Nowhere to be found. I mean, I'm looking for Natu. Where's that intrinsic, real Natu? Empty. Nowhere to be found. But is Natu here or not? There's only one right answer. Yeah, she's right here. Right. So when we come back to that network of conventions of relative truth, then, with no grasping, with no reification, if I were an Arya Bodhisattva, I would attend to you and say, is not to here? Sure, she's right there. Right where her body is, that where she is. She and her body tend to go together. You know? And so, right where you, there you are, right there. If an Arya Bodhisattva, sure, sure, you're right here. How are you? Let me shake your hand. You know, like that. But, with no illusion. I'll call you not to, and I'll 
Oh, yes, my name's Alan, I'm an American, blah, blah, blah. We have this whole conversation. I'm participating in that network of conventions, but with no delusion. No delusion. And so are you there? Do you have some problems with your body? Yep. So do I have some problems of my own. Most people do, of one sort or another. On the conventional, conventional level. But because one has seen to the essence, the emptiness, therefore, even when you come back to the convention, it doesn't grip you. And that's where the freedom is. Not that it goes away, not that you get a general anesthetic. Not through your body, not through your mind. Although there is this kind of important point. And that is, if we just stick with the Shravagayana, which is kind of our context for this first four weeks, does the arhat experience pain in the body? Sure, if it's injured, if it's ill, yep, it does. There's no question. Does the arhat experience mental suffering? No. And why? Because although the body can be afflicted, it's wounded, it's sick, and so forth, that body is carried over by past karma and so forth. Karma can still ripen, of course, even after you're an arhat. It does. But the mind now is free of affliction. So no matter what, no matter what happens, no mental suffering. So this is why it said when the Buddha himself was passing away, remember the story? It's very moving. The Buddha gave three months advance notice to all of his students. You know, after he had his conversation with Ananda, and Ananda did not ask him to stay, then the Buddha, then Buddha told Ananda, he said, okay, Ananda, three months from now, I'm finished. My work here's done. But I'm giving everybody advice, nice advance notice. Three months, so we'll have time to say goodbye. And then finally, The day comes, yeah? And here's a person who has blessed the earth for 84 years. Illuminating, liberating so many beings. Embodying everything he teaches. And he's about to pass. <laughs> see, I'm not in our hut. They know tomorrow they won't see him anymore. Never see him again. And those who, like myself, are not arhats. Just grief stricken. And the arhats? Oh. They already knew that which bore died. No mental suffering. Not aloof, not cold. Just knowing reality of it. Okay. Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow. <laughs>